Hi, I'm Ben Silveria. I'm Aaron Klein. And I'm Ansel Birch, your host in post. And it's time, time to, to party. party. We're not doctors and we don't give medical advice. Please drink responsibly. Pew, pew. Welcome back. Pew, pew, pew. Welcome to yeah. the third part of our first episode, the edutainment episode. Let us edutain you about things that we learned inside the Terminator. <laughs> <laughs> if this I, is the first episode you're listening to, congratulations! I don't know why you picked part three to listen to first, but you're my kind of people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, party people do what they want. That's right. <laughs> First to your own '90s drum. <laughs> <laughs> but but if what you want happens to be listening to these in order, then you know that we've been talking about the Terminator for the past few parts. That's absolutely right. We've been talking about the 1984 James Cameron classic. The Terminator. In our first episode, we created a drinking slash smoking game. In our second episode, we talked about the movie and how it holds up and what we think about it and its cultural impact. And now, in part three, we'll be taking you down our lazy river of edutainment as we've each picked something from inside the Terminator that we'll be elucidating you on further. <laughs> yeah, so because Aaron is so good at this, uh, I will go first. <laughs> because my... <laughs> Because my lazy river of edutainment uh, is like a a small playground version of the attraction, whereas Aaron is like a full-blown Disney production with Avatar, which also is a James Cameron movie. Mm. Ooh, pull it <laughs> together. <circle>. Hey, <laughs> tell okay. me about your edutainment. <laughs> Okay, so while I was watching The Terminator, uh, I was thinking of all of the cool bits of technology that could have came from this movie, but the the one that stood out to me was the shotgun. Really? Wow, I would not have picked that. That, I'm cool. uh, I don't know why, but like the shotgun is always seen with the Terminator, you know, in most images of the character. And just, I mean, like, I'm by no means a gun person, but just, like, it, it's it's become iconic and synonymous uh, with the franchise. So I just did some digging into the, uh, into the shotgun that the Terminator uses. Uh, he uses the, uh, uh, the, well, what's it called? The pump action shotgun. Yeah, uh, pump is action. The type. Yeah. <laughs> it, it makes it sound like a toy to me just like oh nerf gun but you know this is way more dangerous um uh, <laughs> i like that you said that so casual this is more dangerous clearly like yeah i think so i think so just in case you weren't aware or in case you were confused that a nerf gun is less dangerous than a shotgun <laughs> just in case i'm sorry please continue no it's okay i'm ridiculous i'm aware <laughs> so the modern development of the shotgun uh was uh was created by gun designer john browning uh he worked for winchester firearms when he revolutionized the shotgun design um in 1887 which is way earlier than i thought this you know version of the shotgun existed uh, that's when he introduced the model 1887 lever action repeating shotgun, which loaded a fresh cartridge uh, in the magazine with the action lever. 
um you know before this shotguns were the break open kind that you had to load one in each barrel and then shoot like that um but then that version you know that was overshadowed uh by the end of the 19th century because in 1893 that's when browning introduced the pump action shotgun you know which is now probably the most familiar version of the gun um after that he went into the uh, semi-automatic shotgun um and all that but just the the imagery of the the pump you know of the terminator uh made that stand out to me in particular um it it was in doing my research for this uh for this little shallow dive i was surprised that the the pump action shotgun traced back to the 1800s like i thought that would have been like a a later development um but yeah i see that i because when i picture like the old west which is what i picture the 1800s basically up until 1900 to look like the is the old west i picture what you were talking about before the like the double load one that you like flip over and you're like ching yeah but the but the (laughs) idea you're right of like the pump action uh it also, I just made the connection that that's what the Terminator sound is supposed to emulate is this bomb action shotgun. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I was like, oh, duh, yeah, it's like a, like a Jaws noise. No, it's supposed to be the pump action shotgun, dummy. Duh. Uh, yeah, that sound is like iconic. And I don't think of it as I think of it as being something that's around in like the 50s. I, it's I'm I'm also surprised, but it's as old as it is. Yeah. Um <laughs> that's that's what i got you know i uh i was All real right. curious about when that design was really introduced and made popular and mm-hmm. that was my answer so interesting have you ever shot a gun i have never shot a gun um not a real gun i've shot bb guns uh you know oh, okay like at the fair and stuff but like i've never shot like a real gun mm-hmm. uh i feel like I would make an idiot of myself trying to shoot a pump action shotgun for the first time. Yeah, I've never shot a shotgun. I'm a little worried about it because it has such a strong recoil too. I'm afraid of, and like I've I've popped both of my shoulders out in the past, and so I'm a little worried that I would shoot and like fuck my shoulder up. So yeah, yeah, and and I think that's why it's so uh so important that Arnold can do it with one hand, you know, because I think that that just shows how strong he is and how the terminator is supposed to be mm-hmm. so I, I just love that image of yeah you know with one hand i i had a a toy shotgun uh like that that the the uh the rounds would actually pop out of the gun after <laughs> you shoot it that's <laughs> it a little a much for a child's toy, toy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about all that. That seems like a weird thing to give a child, but it is kind of cool. Yeah, they they did make sure that it was brightly colored and not at all real looking, thankfully. But oh man, it's uh, it's definitely a weird thing to include on a toy. What have you got for us, Aaron? That was super interesting. Thanks, Ben. Uh, I have. So I'm going to talk about phone books because they're such a central part of the movie. Wow, and it's. I it was weird. I was watching it, and when Reese comes through and looks up Sarah Connor and looks through the phone book, I just had this moment of like, "Oh yeah, there used to be like 
books that got sent to everyone's houses that everybody's name and address and phone numbers were in, which just feels wild <laughs> now in 2020. Like, that's a... Like, the idea that you just get sent a list of people's numbers and addresses, it, it, it still kind of blows my mind, to be honest. Like, I'm old enough that obviously I grew up with phone books and that, like, I looked up my friends' numbers in phone books and got a hold of people and, like, looked up businesses by looking in the yellow pages. But, like, I'm in my 30s and I'm st- I'm already, like, but who the fuck owns a phone book now? Like, it's, <laughs> it's not a common thing anymore. And so I wanted to look up and learn a little bit more about phone books. So, it, the slogan for the phone books when they first started being introduced was let your fingers do the walking which i've heard that phrase so many times i had no idea that it came from advertisements for phone books so there's a a fun little knowledge drop for you uh the first phone book was a single piece of cardboard that listed 50 individuals businesses and other offices that were in new haven connecticut which had a phone it didn't actually include phone numbers because the way that phones used to work is that you would dial up to the operator and you would tell the operator who you wanted to be connected to and they would do the actual connection. So you didn't actually have to know anybody's phone number. And so what phone directories were were just literally a directory of people who had phones. So you could pick up your phone and tell the operator to connect you to so-and-so over at the post office and they could do that for you because you know from your phone directory that they have a phone where they can pick up over there, which I thought was really interesting Like, because you think of a phone book and you think like phone numbers <laughs> like that's it's in a phone booth you open it up you look for someone's name and number and it literally just used to be pe- the names of people and businesses who had a telephone it's just part of technology right like you don't think about the fact anymore that phones are just ubiquitous everyone has one like children have telephones they're they're mm-hmm. it's it would you'd be hard pressed to walk into a business that doesn't have one and you'd be even harder to pressed to find a family that has no phone whatsoever available to them and so the idea that like you had to know who even had a phone at all to get a hold of is just such a different time culturally that it's it's very interesting to look back at so that happened in on february 21st 1878 was the first phone book of the 50 people on a piece of cardboard britain's first phone directory was uh like a year and a half later almost two years later January 15th, 1880, and theirs was 240 names and addresses of individuals in and businesses inside of London. So we've talked a little in the past, which people may or may not hear eventually, about phone booths and about the way that <laughs> Americans really introduced the technology of phone booths, but then it was Britain who latched onto it, and so then they were the ones who like pushed it out culturally in a way that we now associate Britain with phone booths. And so I feel like directories kind of have that same feel where in america we like we were the one who invented this technology but britain was like cool we love phones we love phone booths we love people talking to each other on the phone and so you know what we're gonna do books directories send that shit to your house you'll know who's on the phone so i love that britain just like really enthusiastically embraced this idea and was like we're gonna make this what it is and like they basically shaped the way that phone books were done for a super super long time the addition that made a phone book what we see it for those of you who've never seen a phone book i don't know maybe you've never (laughs) seen a phone book it never it didn't even occur to me until this moment if you maybe have never actually seen a physical phone book a phone book is a direct it's a list of names and addresses and phone numbers of businesses and individuals the white pages are the individuals you can look up an individual's residential number 
I think they list cell phone numbers now too sometimes. You can find those in the white pages. Yellow pages are specifically for businesses. That's how you look up if a business has a number that you can call. And then the green or blue pages in a phone book are government agencies. So if you ever see a phone book and you're like, what's these fucking colored pages? The yellow ones are for businesses and the green and blue ones are for government agencies. So the yellow pages were first introduced in Chicago, actually, in 1886, and they were the first ones to include a separate section that was listed for not individuals and residential, but for actual, like, businesses, which I think is cool. And it, it like, makes sense in Chicago, too, in a place that was, like, about post the World's Fair, that they want to make sure that people, like, understand, like, you call this place if you want a hotel. Don't call this dude because he can't do shit for you. Like, it makes sense that they're like, let's make sure we everybody understands <laughs> that this is how this is going to work. And so one of the other things I found interesting, like, this is, like, this seems so obvious, but until I looked it up, it wasn't like, like a light bulb had not gone off. The font Bell Gothic was invented specifically for phone books because it's very easy to read when it's printed at a small font. So Bell Gothic was commissioned by AT&T specifically so people would be able to read phone numbers and names easier at small print in phone books. Which I thought was fascinating. Like, Bell Gothic is such a... Everyone knows what that font looks like, even if you don't know what the name is, because it's just general print, <laughs> because you can print it at any fucking size and people can read it. And so the fact that there's this like very well-known font that only exists because of phone books, it, it kind of blew my mind. It was, it, it was a really interesting thing to tap into the idea that like our culture changes so much in so many ways and we just forget that the reason that this thing existed was because of X, Y, and Z now defunct cultural piece. So I found that really interesting. Uh, France was the first country to have an electronic directory. It was called Minitel. You had to dial 1-1 and then it would call into an electronic system and you could look up someone's phone or you could ask for someone's phone number that way. So that was in... Oh man, I wrote down the year and then now cannot read my own handwriting. I believe it's 1986. (laughs) (laughs) It was at the very end of the 80s. Uh, I was surprised by how early it was since it was at the end of the 80s other notable things in 1991 the u.s supreme court in feast versus rule ruled that phone companies could not write make copyrights on a phone listing because it's not actually creative property it's just data collection but at the time phone books were the people who printed them were worried anyone can print this there's nothing that keeps us from having to share this what would normally be patented information because anyone can do this data collection and so that's why after 1991 there's a shitload of phone books because people are other people started making them and we're like oh this is a thing i can do everyone has a phone book i'll just get my company contracted out to this community and i'll be the one that distributes in there 1996 the U.S. got their first electronic directories with yellowpages.com and whitepages.com, which I remember and used <laughs> on my old family computer. That was the first time the U.S. had some had what we now basically know as ubiquitous is everyone just looks online for things. Like That was kind of the first thing that pointed us away from using an actual phone book. And so since 1996, the phone books still exist. They're everywhere. They still get sent out all the time. You'll you, if you live in an apartment complex, they probably get delivered into your mailroom and then taken away four weeks later by the trash collection. But in 2012, a bunch of North American cities in America and Canada started to pass laws about, we don't want this anymore. We don't want unasked for phone books to be distributed because it's a huge waste of resources. It burns a lot of greenhouse gases. Like Climate change is real. It's a thing that we need to be considering. And the 
I don't even know what to call it. They just call it an industry group, which I guess is like a super PAC before they called them super PACs. The industry group for uh, phone books sued the United States and Canada and basically forced them to allow them to continue distributing phone books. And on one hand, like, why? Right? Like, we don't need phone books. This seems like a huge waste of, like, phone, the, to make phone books every year, 1.4 million metric tons of greenhouse gases are released, and 600,000 tons of paper are consumed every single year in order to make phone books. That's still true to this day. And so, on one hand, yeah, we shouldn't be fucking doing that. That's crazy. We, we really need to refocus away from this in a time where we need to be taking climate change seriously. But also, what we don't think about a lot are disadvantaged communities who don't have access to this information electronically and do actually still need physical copies of phone books. And like in a phone booth, like the ones that are still available, we do kind of need that stuff available so that they can be used in emergency resources. And so really what we need to figure out as a society is how do we keep these companies in business so that they can provide what is essentially like an emergency service to people that don't have the access to the electronic resources that the rest of us kind of take for granted. And so I, I was really interested while I was reading this, this like back and forth now about when is it appropriate? When would it be appropriate to completely phase out physical paper copies of phone books? And the answer is only after we provide some kind of electronic tablet or phone to everyone. Like, that's kind of the only way that we can really stop making and distributing these. So it's a, it's still a contentious issue. It's a thing that still exists. And now, many, many years later, we still don't really have an answer for the way that we'll phase them out. But I, it's just bizarre to think, like, oh, you could just walk up to a phone book and find somebody's address. Like, that's... Also, this is just, like, a, a thing that I learned this year and I thought was very interesting your number, your addresses are still publicly available. It's not just in phone books that they're listed. If you're registered to vote, anyone can find your address. And so I learned this year, and I think it's an interesting thing to share, that many people who have experienced domestic violence are disenfranchised by this because they can't register to vote because then the people who abused them can find them. And so all of these people are disenfranchised because they don't want their addresses to be publicly available. And there's no way to opt out of that in the voting system that we have in America. And so that's just a, an interesting thing that I learned about this year. And I wanted to bring more people awareness of like, it sucks. It really sucks that there are women out there who escaped from dangerous and deadly situations who now can't vote and have no say in what's happening in their, the their communities and their governments around them because they're still being victimized by the fact that there's no way to opt out of that system. So just a thing to keep in mind and keep in mind when some people say they don't vote, there are reasons and sometimes it's stuff like that. So that's just, I think it's just important to keep that stuff in mind. So there you go. There's my lazy river of information <laughs> about phone books and also about accidental disenfranchisement, I guess. <laughs> uh, party people, can you see why I didn't want to go second? <laughs> Like, oh my gosh, that was so much information and so much good information. It was like, only two pages. It only took two pages of notes this time. Only two pages. Only two. I had like a few paragraphs. I do a lot of research. I just oh think my it's God. neat. No, that's so neat. Like, I can't believe how much waste phone books create. I know. It's, I mean, if you like think about it, like, obviously, like, what? Yeah. People barely even use phone books anymore. But it is a really interesting idea that, like, we can't really stop making them altogether. There needs to be some kind of 
more climate change friendly way to produce this stuff and like i don't know what that answer is i have no idea 100 percent. i always get frustrated when uh when people ask for paper copies of manuals for their appliances (sighs) because most manufacturers post them online you know so that they don't have to use the paper Mm -hmm. but you know uh some people are so adamant about having a physical paper copy and i'm just like you're not going to look at it ever Mm -hmm. like what is the point of having this but then you know the the thought does cross my mind like oh maybe they don't have a computer maybe they don't have email which is like a hard thing to imagine right now but like you're absolutely right there are totally people out there who don't have access to a device that could give them the phone books information right you know it's uh that's definitely a a privilege that i have that i have to think about more often you know but Mm -hmm. like i'm still gonna get mad if someone asks me for (laughs) a specific manual from the manufacturer and not printed out on paper from yeah, me there because are that's certain kinds of manuals ridiculous. if there are certain manuals where if people are requesting them you're like okay you just had money that you burnt and lit on fire like you don't need this manual like that's definitely i think a different situation then but you're right like i think a lot of people jump to oh you can just find this online but like some people can't it's that's a resource yeah. that we take for granted that is absolutely not everywhere and not everyone can afford that or afford wi-fi in order to support this kind yeah. of devices even if they have them right that's why we need to institute public wi-fi you know that needs yes. to be a more widespread thing oh my god absolutely it should be a public utility it's it's fucking oh, yeah. criminal that it's not yeah. especially it, now like especially we're in the middle of, we're in a pandemic and everyone's fucking working from home like it, it has never been more clear that this should be a public utility 100 percent. i like the idea of public access terminals it's sort of like we talked about with phone booths where like it, it thinking it's important to provide that kind of thing for people who need it for especially for like emergency type services but then the question is how do you keep that maintained and who pays for the maintain the maintenance of it and like how do you make sure that you're putting it in a place where it's not gonna get vandalized all of the time mm-hmm. and part of that is if you don't provide community resources to a community and then you just throw a fucking terminal in there like of course they're gonna get mad about that stuff so it's, yeah in general i think it's a good idea and on michigan state university's campus they have it's not really like a um a computer but it is like an access terminal that is specifically for emergencies and so that's what i always associate them with where they're they're lit on the so michigan state university campus runs by um the cedar river and it can get very dark on those trails and so those emergency access like information points are bright blue glowing stations so that you also have this like place that you can go when it's dark in case you're like actually like worried for your safety too that they pull in for that and so i think that that's where that kind of stuff needs to go that kind of like safety and emergency tech is what it should be focused on i don't think about them a lot and then every time i see them i'm like i'm glad that these exist i'm glad that these are here and like are available for people it's i I think they provide an important service just in the fact that they exist and people know that they're available not gonna lie when you said that they were lit I was like thinking, like, oh, they're lit AF. Oh. I'm like, oh, I guess they're cool. Uh, but <laughs> they're lit. Listen, they're electric blue. They're here for your safety. It's lit. <laughs> um, but also, the other thing that I thought of for safety, like kiosks, I thought of uh, Demolition Man. You know that that kiosk that Simon Phoenix finds when he uh, comes out of the cryo freeze, and that gives him all that information about. 
you know, where he is and his time. Like, not only is it a good exposition device, it's uh, it does seem like that would be a very helpful portal, almost like a, a mall directory, you know? Like, yes. I think yeah, having totally. those strategically placed would be very helpful. I feel like bus stations is the way to do it because then you're also, there are people who are waiting and, like, have that capacity to, like, use something like that or people are sheltered because they're in like a bus station and can use that a little more safely. Yeah, so I guess we are about out of time on The Terminator. God damn it, why did I let you do this? <laughs> you can find us on the internet. <laughs> I'm at NYD Urgency on Instagram. I'm at BSilverio20 on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Shanty Showtime on Instagram and Twaberry on Twitter. And you can participate in the conversation with us wherever you would like to do that by using the hashtag time to party. That's two, the number two party. A huge thanks to Marlon Longit of Marlon and the Shakes for our theme song and April Moralba for the podcast art. Uh, well, party people, until next time, when we bring you another cool time travel piece of media, be excellent to each other. Party on, dudes! Air guitar!